All right. How uh, how are we doing? You got to remind me. Um, what were we talking about last week? Uh, we were not talking about millennial. Okay. And was that clear to everybody? Clear as mud? No. No. I wouldn't hear it. <laughs> Doesn't count if you weren't here, Mike. Okay. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and and were there any questions on that after thought about it for a week or anything? That Okay, um, so we, and then we decide what we decide we're going to do. Yeah. Well, okay, so let's do this because because we, we went through Revelation quickly in pretty summary fashion. Um, so let's spend some time in the prophets. Daniel would be a good one. And we'll start to flesh out in more detail what uh, Revelation is going to be talking about. And then we can go back to Revelation. Um, well, uh, someone's going to have to remind me of this because, um, um, unfortunately, I'm teaching more than I've ever taught, and uh, um, and it's not getting better. So, um, so the the brain is running on barely; it's running on fumes. Um, Okay, Book of Daniel, 12 chapters. Well, let me open us a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, uh, we'll talk about uh, we'll talk about Daniel. Lord, thanks for this morning, the pastor for the sermon, for our time together. And Lord, we lift up this time to you, and pray that um, that our understanding would be clear, the Bible would become clearer, and uh, and our understanding would change our hearts and change our lives in Christ. Amen. Okay, um, there was a day when at the seminary we taught Daniel and Revelation together. Um, and the reason why is they're so closely aligned. For example, right there at the beginning of um, the book of Revelation, almost in the first few verses, um, the Lord says to Daniel that the time is near. That is in contrast to Daniel chapter 12, where the time is off, right? Close the book, Daniel. These things are sealed to you. So Daniel, who's Daniel? Did we talk about who Daniel was? Okay, he's a Jew. Uh, uh, took, okay, good. So um, so when you, uh, I, now I'm, it's coming back. I remember drawing my map on the board that was, Poorly done. Okay. Uh, I was trying to do it this way. It's clearer this week. So there's the border. There's uh, the Nile up there and then uh, down into Israel. If you keep going up, uh, you'll the Fertile Crescent. We get Assyria and Babylon and Egypt. Those are, those are the three major um, powers during the time of, of Israel's kingdom. 
leading up to Israel's kingdom. Of course, Egypt is is a big power. Uh, Israel is um, through the uh, through the ministry of Moses delivers Israel out, takes them to the promised land, and then it's the time of the judges, uh, and then the establishment of the kingdom. Uh, and at that time, Assyria, Babylon has had been overtaken by Assyria, um, and uh, Egypt is struggling. Am I supposed to be wearing, I'm probably supposed to even turn it on. Um, see if I can get it to come on. We've got a light, so we're working on it. Okay, so, um, so remember, um, everything that the prophets are going to say, everything the prophets are going to say, is going to come straight out of... Uh, uh, Deuteronomy, out of the law, out of the covenant. Okay, and so when Israel's obedient, they'd be blessed in the land. When they're disobedient, I dropped it, and uh, the batteries came out. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Kind of in charge means nobody's in charge of anything. Yeah. Okay. So um. So when we're thinking about uh, the prophets, um, the writing prophets. Now, um, you'll you'll hear about this referred to in different ways: the law and the prophets, right? Uh, when you get that in the Bible, the law and the prophets. Um, the law is the is the Torah, Pentateuch, the first five books. Uh, the prophets are not the writing prophets. When it says law and prophets, that's not what you think of as law and prophets. Not Isaiah, Jeremiah. It includes those, but uh, the prophets. You have former prophets and latter prophets. The latter prophets are the writing prophets, and those those are the ones that you think of as the prophets. Okay. Um, the former prophets are uh, Joshua, uh, Samuel. Kings, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. These are these are the the, uh, the former. And so those those books of history that we tend to think of as books of history, those are the former prophets. Okay? That makes sense. Okay. So when when the Bible says the law and the prophets and the Psalms, sometimes it'll say that uh, New Testament. Uh, the uh, the Hebrew Bible is broken up into three parts. Uh, have any of you heard of the Tanakh? The Tanakh. That's what uh, Jews call their Jewish Bible. Uh, it uh, is the T N K. And then they put an A in between those letters to make it Tanakh. Okay? The T is the Torah. Uh, the uh, N is uh, the Nevi'im. Uh, and the Ketavim. Uh, this is uh, law, prophets, and the writings. Okay. Uh, and this is the order of the Bible. So the law and the prophets takes you through uh, the story. Uh, and then the writing prophets 
what we would call the writing prophets, the latter prophets. Both of those, form and latter, are included here. And then the writings, that would be Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, uh, those, those types of books are in the writings. And so you'll see this in the New Testament, the law and the writings and the Psalms. Um, uh, all, all of them, Joshua, uh, Judges, Kings, Chronicles, uh, not Chronicles, uh, uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, and the writing prophets, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Daniel's actually down here. Um, so Daniel's not in the Hebrew prophets. Um, books that are down here are First and Second Chronicles. Um, Ruth would be down here. Uh, Proverbs down here. Actually, what's interesting about the relationship between those two is that um, the book of Ruth in the writings follows Proverbs. You remember how Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 31, a excellent wife who can find a... Um, uh, you should uh, avoid an excellent wife uh, who can find. Uh, that is what Ruth is called. And you should uh, avoid. And so uh, that Ketavim, Ketavim, Katav is to write in Hebrew. Uh, Navi is a, is a prophet or a prophesy. And uh, Torah is law. Yeah, with the Moses. Yeah. yeah, and we think of five books, but this this was the the, the Moses section of Torah. Ishit Hayil. Hayil is strength. Um, uh, Boaz is called a Gabor man, Gabor Chayil, man of strength, uh, strength of character. Um, so anyway, so uh, so <coughs> you're reading in these the, the the prophets and the writings. It's all dependent upon Torah. You have to know Torah, and the judgments that are being proclaimed upon Israel here are laid out. Laid out in the Torah. Right? So if you don't know Torah, if you don't know the first five books, you, you really are going to struggle to put things together uh, for the rest of the the rest of the Bible uh, because it's so foundational. Um, I was talking with Chick Coonrod one day, and uh, he said that um, um, seems to me that the Bible is about Israel. I said, uh, "Yep, you got it." And the Gentiles get grafted in because of Israel. Yep, you got it. Uh, the beginning of the book, uh, the middle of the book, and the end of the book is all about Israel, the nation Israel. Uh, the promises to Israel for the nations. Okay. So, um, so Torah, uh, Moses, uh, remember, did we talk? It seems like we might have. Talked about dates in here. 2000, yeah. Abraham, you think 2000, uh, Moses 1500, David 1000. Okay, 
So my question is, you always see Abraham starts at 2000 BC. But what's before that? I mean, is Adam and Eve at 3000? I mean, because the, the numbering goes down until Christ. And then the well, years. actually, actually, the numbering doesn't go down until Christ. So, yeah. Let me um. Let me see here. I think I've got something yeah, that will ask. Uh, will answer your question. Uh, where am I looking for? Um, Okay, let me put this up here so that uh, y'all can see this too. All right, let's see if this is going to work. All right, y'all see that up there? All right, so this is present day map. This is, I should have done this last week, but I've been thinking. Okay, so Israel's here, okay, present day map, Israel here. This green section here, Fertile Crescent. You'll hear that sometimes mentioned as the Fertile Crescent. Uh, this is the Arabah, Arabian Desert. Uh, Arabian, Arabah, means desert. So this is the desert desert. Thank you for being redundant, redundantly redundant. Okay, so uh, Egypt basically uh, operates here along, uh, uh, along the Nile. Okay, all right. Let's see if we can, uh, let me see if I can slideshow. Make it a little bit bigger. It's 11 o'clock. Thank you, thank you. Okay. Um, I don't know if you can see this or not. Uh, I can point things out. Okay, so so this is Egypt, okay? Um, uh, Egypt has, uh, just like Israel, is split into northern and southern kingdom. So Egypt, throughout parts of their history, was split in the north and the south, okay? Um uh, this would be called the lower kingdom. Lower because it's lower. Not lower on the map, but lower in elevation. Water runs down the hill, right? Uh, and the upper kingdom, okay? Uh, and so we'll talk about uh, Thebes is going to be where the, uh, where the upper kingdom is focused most of the time. And Memphis, uh, the lower kingdom, okay? Uh, Haran, uh, where is Haran? Haran is here. Uh, uh, Nineveh, the Ninevites is here. Okay, so so when you think of Assyria, we're thinking this area. Can you see my cursor moving up there? Kind of hard to see. Up there. Let's see if we can get a better picture. Okay, uh, this is third millennium. Okay, so we're talking about before Jesus or before uh, before the kingdom, before Abraham's time. Uh, the world was kind of centered around Egypt. We have early writings from Egypt and Akkad. This is Akkadian and Sumerian. You're an ancient uh, Near Eastern or comparative Semitics, and you do an Old Testament PhD. You get the joy of learning Akkadian and Sumerian. It's a joy. Um, now we're at 2000. Okay, now so Assyria is on the scene as well as the old Babylonian Empire. So you see right down here, Ur. You see right here, Ur of the Chaldees. Okay, this is Ur of the Chaldees. Uh, this is where Abraham uh, Abram begins his journey, and he will head up to Haran. Haran is up here in the area of the 
Hurrians, Haran up here. And then he's going to go down into the promised land, okay? Uh, what this map is showing you, just the green, the green uh, uh, line in particular, this is called the International Coastal Highway. And the red map, uh, the, the red is the King's Highway. Uh, this was the trade route between all the world powers, okay? So whoever controlled this middle section, Megiddo in particular, uh, Megiddo, Damascus, these cities, uh, controlled uh, the trade route between the major powers. Okay? So you'll see uh, Megiddo destroyed several times. You know Megiddo, uh, you know Armageddon. Armageddon. Uh, Har is mountain, Megiddo, Har Megiddo is a mountain or hill of Megiddo, and it really is just a hill, it's not a mountain. Um, uh, and so this is uh, where Abram goes in his migration, okay? Starts in Ur of the Chaldees, somehow either he goes along one river or the other, up to Haran, then down into the uh, Promised Land. Okay, now, I said that, um, that um, there's not a continuous chronology from the times of the kings, up until the time of Christ, okay? Um, so we don't have, for example, Jehu, uh, the, the biblical writers don't say, Jehu was born in the year 841 B.C., <laughs> right? Um, they say Jehu was born, and, and, and they, they list them in succession, starting with Solomon, I'm sorry, Saul, uh, and he reigned for 40 years, and then uh, then uh, David reigned for 40 years, and then Solomon reigned for 40 years, and so on. And then once the kingdom is split, you start getting these, this king reigned for this long while this king was over here, and it's only relative terms, right? But So you have the, the names of the kings in succession, but not, not in a B.C. dating. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, every nation does this. Uh, there are kings lists throughout the ancient Near East that we found, Babylonian kings list. Uh, we've got a, uh, in Assyria, uh, there was a list that not only had, it was not a king's list per se, it was uh, what we call an eponym, an eponym list. Um, it was the, kind of the like, Time Magazine's man of the year for every year. Um, the first year of a king's reign, he got to be the man of the year. But after that, um, there was a, a list of, uh, of someone who did something substantial during that year. And if there was anything else substantial that happened during that year, that was listed as well. Okay. And in this list, um, um, historians and archaeologists cannot place historical events in sequence without a chronology. So while the Bible does describe chronology in relative terms, what we're talking about. This king reigned for this long and then this one. It does not give a continuous chronology up until the birth of Christ. So we don't know exactly what year it was. Okay? Uh, for this reason, chronology of the Bible can only be discussed in terms of relativity rather than fixed dates. However, the discovery of an Assyrian eponym list, which covered every uh, year for many years, um, gave scholars the information, information they needed to establish definitive dates. The list named a man of the year as an eponym, but often noted principal events. We just talked about that that took place. 
for the year of Bursagali, the governor of Guzana, in the month of Shimanu, the eponym records that an eclipse of the sun took place. Well, the sun's, you know, the earth's turning at the same rate, and so they can determine when that happened in Assyria. And uh, they determined that that happened in the afternoon, I mean, they can get that tight, in the afternoon of June 15th, 763 BC, okay? So now they can date everything on that list. Does that make sense? But not only that, there were also two events listed in that, on that eponym, on that inscription. They are also recorded in the Bible. And so now you've got this, this Assyrian uh, date chronology, and now you've got two connections over there to, to Israel. And so now you can, you can date all of Judah and, and Israel. There's also connections to Babylon and connections to, to Egypt. And so, so when you're talking about Babylon and Egypt and uh, Assyria and, um, uh, and the northern and southern kingdoms, Israel and Judah, now we can flesh all that out with, with very precise dating, um, at least during this period. Does that make sense? Now, uh, in um, the, the two events are, are um, in 853 BC, the, the list records that Shalmaneser III fought against Ahab. This is also recorded in 1 Kings. Okay? Um, and so now we can establish the dates of Ahab as 8, uh, go back, 874 uh, to 853 BC. Um, and then uh, in the first year of Jehu's reign, Shalmaneser III invaded Palestine. Uh, in fact, this is pretty neat. Um, not only do we have, uh, see if I can find it. Not only do we have an inscription of that, there it is. Uh, this is the black obelisk of Shalmaneser III. This thing, it stands about that high, okay? Uh, in this uh, second pane down from the top, in the second, Picture down from the top. This is uh, this is um, Akkadian writing on the bottom, uh, and this is King Jehu bowing down to Shalmaneser the third. So not only do we have evidence of Jehu's reign, we have pictures <laughs> at least one, right? And so this is how uh, people who study ancient Near Eastern stuff. This is a lot of Old Testament PhD background stuff. That um, if you want to go do that, bless your heart. So uh, this is in a museum. Yes, this one is in. Uh, I believe this was this one is in England. Uh, there he is bowing down. Um, so anyway, now how do we get from the date of the kings back to uh, the patriarchs, to Moses? Uh, 1 Kings, now we've got dating in the Bible. 1 Kings 6.1 says that in the fourth year of the reign of Solomon, um, 480 years after uh, the Exodus, Israel began, Solomon began to build the temple. <clears throat> so we know that Solomon's reign was 970-971. There's this one year dispute, year of ascension, it's not relevant. Um, 
So let's say that the fourth year would be 966. You add 480, you get to 1446 BC. And that's how we get the date of the Exodus. Um, and Moses was 80 years old during that, um, the Exodus, right? So now we know it, uh, Moses' birth was 1526. This is how we establish dating in the Bible. Okay? And this is how we know that, um, that the Assyrians came and invaded uh, the northern kingdom and overtook the northern kingdom in 722. 722 BC. In 701 BC, uh, Sennacherib, who's now the king of Babylon, he's Babylon, Assyria. He has surrounded um, Jerusalem. Hezekiah, the king, cries out to uh, uh, to the Lord, and the Lord delivers Hezekiah and Jerusalem from the Assyrian army. And for basically, you know, until 605, um, there is um, a time when invading armies aren't coming and knocking at the doorstep. Okay? Um, as we're approaching 605, like 613, 611, 609, these are battles. And you can see um, as you're going back, uh, where's my, my map back here? get to uh, this one. Okay. So uh, 609, uh, 609, you see Haran up there? Um, Haran uh, up there at the top uh, falls in 609. Okay. Uh, Asher falls in uh, 613, uh, Nineveh in 611, something like that. Um, and so you can see uh, the Babylonians overtaking the Assyrians and had been heading down. They weren't heading down to wipe out Israel. That wasn't the point. That was just a little city, Jerusalem. Where are they going? Why were they going south? They're, they're going down to fight against Egypt. Um, uh, Josiah is going to get caught up in uh, one of these battles where the Egyptian king is heading north to fight against, fight for um with the Assyrians against the Babylonians, and he gets caught and he dies in this battle. So a lot of this stuff is recorded uh, in the um, in the Bible, and it's also recorded in history. But Daniel, uh, in 605, the Babylonians now have come down. They have overtaken uh, the land, uh, and they have subjugated uh, Jerusalem, and they've placed a vassal king uh, on uh, on the throne. Um, one that will pay tribute to the Babylonians. And Daniel's hauled off into exile. Okay? Um, when we think of exilic prophets, we've got basically three time periods of the prophets. Pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. Okay, Pre-exilic. That's all of them except for <laughs> Ezekiel and Daniel. Ezekiel and Daniel are the exilic prophets. And then post-exilic prophets, we've only got a few, right? Malachi, Haggai, um, uh, Zechariah. Um, making sense so far? Tracking. Okay. Daniel is going to write this book in exile. Put them back up. Put them back, them back up. Let's see here. Where'd you people go? 
people. Well, I guess well, all any record that might have been were destroyed. Yeah, so when we're trying to date the, the creation, the problem um, we run into with dating creation. Um, yeah, is that there's an early date, late date, um, old earth, new earth. Do genealogies um, in the Bible, are they presented in the Bible in such a way that they don't skip over anybody? And there's a big debate about, about that. Right? Remember, the Bible was not written to... Um, to give you a date of creation as much as it was written to tell you the story of creation and how we got to where we are now. Um, if you ask me or if the students ask me, um, do I hold to a young earth, old earth, or that whole discussion, evolution, I say, well, I'm trying to figure out why God took six days to create. <laughs> I mean, let there be light, poof, light. Well, then what do you do for the next? 23 hours and 59 minutes and, you know. <laughs> no, that's good. Let's take a break. Like, man, you needed a break after uh, six days? It took you that long, you know? Um, yeah, so, so literarily, there's no, you know, all of the, the day-age theory, gap theory, evolution, all of that is an effort to try to To, to account for the perceived age of the earth, which I think is funny because Jesus turned water into wine, right? Well, what's the difference between water and grape juice? Or grape juice and wine? It's instantly age. So what are we talking about here? I mean, um, how old was Adam when he was created? <laughs> right? And did he have a belly? Yeah. Um, yeah. So if Adam uh, Adam was created fully mature, okay, well, can't God make it? You know, it's just so to me, it's it's a, a, a nonsensical debate. Um, so we quiz students on dates, which I find ridiculous because Solomon didn't know what year he was born. Solomon, what year were you born? Solomon couldn't fast, pass our, our PhD exams. <laughs> well, uh, I was born the day I was born. <laughs> when did you reign, Solomon? Um, I reigned after David. <laughs> right? And this is how they talked about, about these things. Okay. Now, 12 chapters. 12 chapters in Daniel. Um. Remember I told you, I think I told you this, um, at the end of each chapter, and you can do this with story, any story, just go to the end of the scene and figure out what the scene's doing. The, the point of a scene is always at the end of the scene, okay? The point of each chapter in Daniel is at the end of the chapter, at least through chapter seven. They're not really chapters. Yeah, they're not really chapters, but the way that we've kind of got them divided up, it, it pretty much falls right along, okay? So in other words, what they've done uh, in, in the, 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 the chapters in Daniel is divided it along the scenes. So in other words, when the screen goes black 
and then the new scene starts. Okay, so that's, this will be a good place for a new chapter. Okay, so chapter one. What's chapter one about? And most of us, um, if you've spent some time around the church, you probably have heard at least some of these stories. You've heard Daniel in the lion's den. You've heard Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, uh, those are probably the two biggest ones uh, that you've heard. Um, the first story begins with Daniel and his friends being hauled off into exile. And they don't eat the king's choice food. They were, they were selected uh, specifically to be trained in wisdom, the wisdom of the king, the wisdom of the Babylonians, so that they could serve the Babylonian king in his, you know, in his kingdom. And what happens? Daniel doesn't eat the food. Yep. And, uh, and okay, any floors? And and what's the point at the end of this scene? Why why does not eating the food matter? They're here. Why doesn't eat the food matter? Because they're they're following the law. They're following the law that was revealed to them, and the Lord blesses them, and the Lord is the source of all of their wisdom, not the Babylonians, right? And so let me turn over to Daniel. So, so chief, go to the end of the first chapter, right? So we know the story. Um, I look at verse 17, and for these four months, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for the presenting of them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and out of them not one was found to be like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Um, Daniel, or Daniel, uh, Dan, uh, Dan means to judge. God is my judge. Um, Hananiah, uh, uh, Hanan is grace or mercy. But, uh, Yahweh gives grace. Uh, Mishael, who is uh, Shah, who is like uh, the Lord or who is like God, literally. Do you see the uh, the el at the end of that? Uh, that's Elohim. Okay, that's the short name for Elohim. Um, so Danny L. Uh, uh, Mishael. You see the A-H at the end of Azariah and Hananiah? That's the Yahweh. Y-A-H. That's the A-H part of Yahweh. Uh, Azar uh, to uh, uh, Azar to remember something like that. And they entered the king's service. And for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them to be ten times better than the magicians and the conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued uh, until the first year of Cyrus the king. Okay, now why is it saying to the first year of Cyrus the king? This is uh, in chapter 9. You have Darius the Mede, and then you're going to go all the way down to Cyrus the king. Why does Cyrus the king matter? Uh, it's because Cyrus is the one who's going to give the decree to return back to, uh, to the land. Okay, Cyrus, uh, uh, the, the Median, uh, Medes and Persians king, 
is going to give a command to return. Okay. All right. So um, chapter two. We'll, we'll summarize this. Okay. Just just walk you through this. Chapter two. What's going on in chapter two? Chapter two. The king has a dream. You remember this. The king has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Um, and uh, he brings in his conjurers and magicians and tells them um, that they've got to interpret the dream. And they said, okay, king, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. He says, no, no, I know how you people are. I will tell you the dream and you'll make something up. So that's not what we're doing. You tell me the dream that I dreamed and then you tell me the interpretation. And they're like, no, wait a second. No one can do that. Well, um, Daniel does it. Uh, they're all go all of the, the magicians, all the conjurers, all of the these officials are going to, to be slaughtered because they could not give the king what he needed to know. Uh, and of course, uh, the, the the four Jewish boys, their heads are on the line as well. And so uh, Daniel asks for a stay of execution, so to speak, seeks the Lord. And the Lord reveals to him uh, the the king, or the, the 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 dream of the king. Okay, go to the end of the chapter. Um, and remember the the the, the 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 vision is the head of gold, and the chest of silver, and then of uh, bronze and iron, uh, uh, and then the feet were iron and clay. Okay. Uh, these represented four kingdoms. Babylon was the head of gold. Then the Medes and the Persians was the chest of silver. Uh, and then uh, the Greeks was the was the bronze, the thighs of bronze. And then the um, uh, the iron was uh, was Rome. And then the remnants, the leftover remnants of that Roman Empire, uh, is the the ten toes, uh, the feet of, of made up of iron. And clay, just as iron and clay don't hear to each other, so this re remaining kingdom will be uh, will not cling to each other. And then there's this stone that is comes from the mountain, which is going to destroy this statue, and um, and it's uh, there's and all of it's going to be swept away. None of it's going to be left. Okay, and that interpretation shows up in. Uh, Pick it up in verse, uh, I don't know, you saw the feet and the toes. Verse 41, chapter 2, verse 41. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. It uh, will, um, but it will, uh, in that it will have the toughness of iron, and you saw the iron mixed with clay. Verse 42. And the toes of the feet are partly of iron and partly of pottery, and some of the kingdom will be strong, and some of it will be brittle. And that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. This iron does not combine with pottery. So in other words, this Roman Empire is going to be broken up. It will not adhere to each other. The, the, the leftover, the, what's left over will remain. Um, and what you're going to see is this, this head of gold, the king's edict, what he says stands, and then uh, the next is going to be not as powerful in the sense that uh, you're going to see the law of the Medes and the Persians. If a law is given, even the king cannot violate the law. 
right? And it's going to go down to Greece, and then it's going to go to Rome, and you're going to have uh, this representative republic, really. Um, so there's this continual decentralization of power all the way down to the Roman Empire, which has it's a representative republic uh, with a Senate and a leader. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Um, in those days, verse 44, in the days of those kings, God will, uh, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will not be destroyed, will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left to another people. Uh, it will crush and put to an end all of these kingdoms, but itself will endure forever. Insomuch as you saw the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and it crushed the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, what's the point of all this? Not only does God reveal dreams, not only is he telling Israel through Nebuchadnezzar's dream, through Daniel's writing, what will come upon Israel, but Nebuchadnezzar's response. Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> fell on his face and, uh, and did homage to Daniel. Ironically, you're going to see this switch in the next. Uh, he's going to, because he thinks so highly of himself, he's going to build this statue of gold in chapter 3, and everybody else has to bow down. But yet, we'll get there. Okay. Uh, offering and uh, 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 present to him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The God of God and the, uh, the Lord of lords, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. So now you've got the Babylonian king. Remember what we just heard about um, the, the uh, Habakkuk, the Lord's presentation of Habakkuk. They do what they want. This, this kingdom is a strong kingdom. And now the king is bowing down to Daniel and doing homage to the God of Daniel. Your God is the God of gods of the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. Now, if you're a Jewish reader, what do you conclude by that? Is the God, the Lord God of Israel stronger than the gods of the Babylonians? Yes. Well, then why are you in exile? It's not because the Babylonian kings are strong. It's because the Lord threw you out of the land. So maybe you need to think about <clears throat> repenting. Return to the Lord. He will restore you from captivity. Okay. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him great many gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief uh, uh, prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made the quest of the king, and he appointed Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego uh, over the administration of the province of Daniel while Daniel was in the king's court. Remember in chapter 1 uh, that the king renames all of these uh, uh, Belteshazzar. Daniel is renamed Belteshazzar, um, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and uh, Azariah Abednego. Okay? Um, and so these uh, three are given uh, 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 an administration over the province of Babylon while while Daniel was in the king's court. Okay. And, 
Well, yeah, 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 yeah. So they're renamed uh, according to Babylonian gods' names. Uh, Daniel doesn't go by Belshazzar in this book, does he? No. Nebuchadnezzar uh, made an image of gold. Okay, so chapter three, he then makes this statue. You remember this story. Um, he builds the statue, and at the, the playing of the music, everybody in the kingdom has to bow down to the statue. Uh, and, and of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. This is reported to the king. So he becomes very angry. Uh, and he, um, interestingly, has the, uh, uh, they're given the chance. Uh, let's pick it up in uh, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, then these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods nor worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment when you hear the sound of the horn and the flute and the lyre, the dragon and the salt, uh, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all of the music, fall down and worship that image that I have made. So, well, but if you do not, you will immediately be cast into the furnace of blazing fire. Uh, and what God is there who can deliver you from my hands? Okay. Now, if you're reading and you know the law, that, that statement ought to ring very loudly in your ears. This is Deuteronomy chapter 32. When Israel rejects the Lord, he will kick them out of the land. Uh, and there is no one, the Lord says, who can deliver you from my hands. So they don't have to worry about the king's hands and being delivered out of the king's hands. They need to be worried about being delivered out of the Lord's hands. It is I who wound, I who heal, I who put to death, I who give life, there is no one who can deliver you from my hands, says the Lord. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Um, remember, Isaiah writes, um, a couple centuries before Daniel, and uh, in chapter 43, uh, in 1 through 39, Daniel is, uh, Daniel, uh, Isaiah is proclaiming judgment upon Israel, and then in 40 through 55, he's talking about this uh, return from Babylon, okay, uh, in 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66, uh, what it will, what will happen in the distant future, okay. So when we're in Isaiah chapter 43, this is talking about the return of Babylon. In Isaiah 43, verse 2, uh, through Isaiah, Israel is told that uh, if they walk through the fire, they will not be burned. And so I'm sure that these three knew the verse, and this is why they're saying this. God is able to deliver us. Uh, and he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, know this, uh, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship uh, the golden image that you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. His faith, face, uh, facial expression was altered. 
uh, and he gave orders for the furnace to be heated up seven times. What's the significance of seven times? Yeah, you know, it's, just, it's the same thing, right? If, you, if the Lord judges you and you don't repent, you will be judged sevenfold, okay? So this is, what side are you going to be on? Either you're going to violate the, the king's edict, and if you do, the, it's going to be heated up seven times, or you're violating the Lord's edict, and the judgment is going to be sevenfold. Now, that's going to, pay, it's going to become relevant when we get to chapter 9, because um, Israel... I'm getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. So so just hold on to, I don't want to even mention, just hold on to that sevenfold, okay? Hold on to that sevenfold, it's important. Um, so the king says, all right, you're going to endure seven times my wrath. And um, and so they, they are, um, he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the fire, uh, the furnace of blazing fire, verse 21, 321. And when these men were tied up with their trousers and their coats and their caps, um, that's kind of what, it's their their coat, their outer covering, and their that which covered their legs. It wasn't their blue jeans and windbreaker and ball cap. <laughs> um, uh, and their clothes, they were cast in the midst of a fire, a furnace of blazing fire. Uh, for this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been extremely hot, the flame of fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of the blazing fire, tied up. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood, uh, stood up in haste. He responded and said to the high officials, Were there not three men cast into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said, Certainly, O king. And he answered, Look, I see four loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Okay. Uh, the uh, King James translates that like the son of God. That's okay. um, not what it says, but it became very in vogue to translate it that way um, as a Christophany. Do you know what a Christophany is? A pre-incarnation um, appearance of Christ. But this isn't a Christophany. And you know this because in a few verses, he's going to be called an angel, a messenger, an angel. And this is Israel's protector all the way through, probably uh, probably Michael. Right? And Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of the blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out of here, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Not even a burn, uh, hair of their head was singed, nor their trousers damaged, none of that. And Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here we are at the end of the chapter. Okay. Uh, Daniel, your God. But now we're not just learning it's Daniel's God, it's the God of Shadrach, Meshach. And who's learning this? Nebuchadnezzar's learning this, right? And it's relevant to Israel. Why? Because God's not just delivering Daniel. He's delivering all of them who cling to his name, right? Delivered his servants who put, up, put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any other God but their own God. Therefore, um, 
I'll back up. I missed it. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. You see that? And delivered his servants. His angel, his messenger, to deliver his servants. That messenger is going to show up in chapter 11. Two angels are going to show up in the story, Gabriel and, uh, and Michael. Gabriel is the communicator. Michael is the defender. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses be reduced to a rubbish heap, insomuch as there is no God who is able to deliver in this way. Deliver from who? From the king's hand. It says, you're, you're, the Lord says, your problem is not the king's hand. Your problem is not being delivered from the king's hand. That king is only doing to you what I have given the order for him to do to you. Your problem is being delivered from my hand, says the Lord. Right? Uh, Israel was not to fear men, correct? They were to fear the Lord. Any application there? Chapter 4. We track along here. Is this making sense? Okay. So all the way, all the way along here. Uh, the, remember that the reader Israel, the Jews, or the readers of Israel. Uh, this was written for them. They were to get the application. Now there's application indirectly to us, uh, but if we repent, we're not going to be returned to the land of Israel. Does that make sense? They were. This was their reason. This is why they were in exile. This is why the Babylonians have hauled them out. And uh, Jeremiah, the prophet has proclaimed 70 years of exile upon uh, the Jews. This is in Jeremiah 29.10, the verse right before the verse everybody knows. Amazing that they can get such a great deal out of 29.11 when 29.10 says, uh, you're going to be in a foreign land and uh, for 70 years you're going to be there. So um, get married and settle down because it's so it goes for them, so it goes for you. I don't know. Um, how old are you now, Johnny? 80. 80? This is what, this is the, so now, uh, so let's say Daniel's seven, uh, 10, 10 years old, 70 years. This, this, <laughs> this is what Daniel's got to look forward to. He's going to come back and rebuild Jerusalem. This is not a wonderful plan I have for your life, declares the Lord. This isn't it, right? Um, it was always resurrection of the dead and eternal life. Now, when we get to chapter 9, uh, remember I was telling you about that seven times. If you are judged by the Lord and you don't, do not repent, then he will pour out upon you sevenfold judgment. They don't repent. And so now, 490. Well, Daniel's not coming back. None of them. All right. There's going to be a partial restoration. Uh, but Israel is going to be uh, continue to be dispersed uh, throughout the 70 weeks. And it's in this last week, the 70th seven, Israel will be returned to the land in full. When is the 70th seven? What book talks about the 70th week? Revelation. That's the book of Revelation. Okay. Well, we're getting a little bit out in front of our skis. Okay, so let's, let's back in here. Okay, so chapter four. Chapter four. Question. Yes, go ahead. Question. If you see that the Babylonians are completely 
decided Yeah, they yeah they did. So what's going to happen? Good question. So um, so the, the Jews knew what Daniel was saying. Uh, the decree to rebuild the city and rebuild its walls is going to it's going to be mentioned in Daniel chapter nine. That decree is going to be given in 444 BC by Cyrus the king. And that starts the clock for the 69 sevens, right? 483 years. Um, and so the, uh, this messianic expectation or anticipation uh, becomes overwhelming at the time of Christ. They were looking for the Christ. Why? Because Daniel the prophet said so. It's time for him to show up. Oh, yeah, they did. Uh, and um, so they were taking into account the dating. They failed to take into account the wording. <laughs> In that time, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and will have nothing. Then uh, the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, so the triumphal entry corresponds to the, exactly the end of the 69th week. And when Messiah is cut off and will have nothing, crucifixion. To make an end uh, to sacrifice, to make an end uh, to, to sin, to make an atonement for sin. Um, then the people of the prince who is to come, that is the, what's left going to be left over of the Roman Empire, the people of Rome, uh, are going to destroy the city and the temple. Um, and they do in 70 AD. Jesus is going to talk about this in Matthew chapter 24. Um, uh, we call it the uh, Olivet Discourse. Uh, he's on the Mount of Olives, which is just across the Kidron Valley. You go down the hill. If you're on the Mount of Olives and you walk down the trail, that's the Triumphal Entry Trail. Uh, and, uh, and then right up the other side of the hill is the city. And this is where Jesus is talking to his disciples, lamenting over the destruction of, of uh, the temple, temple closet, all foretold in the book of Daniel. So um, the more you read the story, the more the, the parts just make perfect sense, right? Uh, if we just read, if we stay within the 66 books and you, and you learn the 66 books, it's amazing. Um, um, I tell students all the time, when we come to seminary, we are told that the Bible is inspired and inerrant. And it becomes kind of a presupposition we bring to the text. That's not how the early church came to the conclusion that the Bible was inspired and without error. It wasn't a presupposition. It was a conclusion. After reading these 66 books, they realized God is in control. God is sovereign. He's running every single part of history um, and still does. And therefore, no human or human authors 
could write this. They had to be inspired because this Bible is flawless, it's an error. They did the same thing that the Christians did, which is read the Bible allegorically. Uh, so the question is, um, um, since in, in the Jewish view, Messiah didn't show up at that time, how do they account for that? How do they deal with that fact? Um, and my response is, they did the, the same thing with the scriptures that the Christians did throughout millennia. They allegorized the text. They made it up. They made it say something the text wasn't saying. Um, um, they, because the temple was destroyed, for example, um, they said, well, the Lord doesn't uh, demand sacrifices, so we'll just do something different. Well, they couldn't offer sacrifices. Um, so they could not keep the law literally. Uh, and so they allegorized. Um, and that's what, it's the same thing that we've done. This is why when we read it, the, the biggest um, let, me tell, let me back up. The first time I went to Israel, um, Charlie Bayless was supposed to teach. He had a heart valve replacement or something. And so I was asked to replace him on the trip. Katie couldn't go, so I went by myself. And, and when we go to, um, over 13 days, we go to several sites every day. And, uh, and you, as you can imagine, these Jewish guides, uh, they have one group after another, after another, after another, after another, year after year, after year, after year. They've heard all of the same stuff, okay? all of it. And so, um, so I had a Jewish bus driver who uh, had just moved back to Israel and a Jewish guide. Uh, they would, the Jewish guide would talk about the place and then I would do the Bible, you know, whatever we we're talking about. That the significance of that site and what was happening in the Bible. And um, in the first day or two, I could tell that they would stay just inside of earshot so that when I was finishing, because they heard it all before, they could come back in and take us to the next, next place. Okay. By the end of the second day, I noticed that every time that we went to a site, they kept getting closer and closer and closer until finally, in the second day, one was sitting here and one was sitting here. And they were listening. And so they, they, uh, when I got onto the, the bus at the end of the second day, the bus driver and the guide cornered me and they said, you don't read these the Old Testament like all these other Christians read the Old Testament. And I said, what do you mean? He said, do you actually think Jesus is the Messiah of the Old Testament? I went, yeah. We've never heard that before. I know that is so now, <laughs> they're, they're shocked to hear that Paul was a Jew. In other words, they've never heard anyone read the Old Testament in the Old Testament context. They all go in there and they make it about some New Testament Christian something. How God's there to bless you and make you wonderful. And, you know, 
basically, uh, Christians have gone in, assassinated the Old Testament context, chosen some verses, and made them about themselves, and called it a religion. And so the bus driver says, so do they have a New Testament in Hebrew? I said, I don't know, I'm sure they do. I'll try to find one. So then the third day I'm searching for places to, uh, you don't remember the place where we go, uh, the gift shop there where we go to see the Jesus boat and all that. So I'm looking in there, man, there's nothing. Well, I get back on the boat the fourth day and they've already got one, they're reading it. Uh, I think that the reason why the Jews, um, why Christians don't read, two reasons, why Christians don't lead Jews to Christ one is because uh, the Lord has uh, blinded their eyes and stopped at their ears. Secondly, it's because Christians don't know the Bible. They don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the scriptures. Um, oh, yeah. And so they're actually hostile towards the Jews. Um, I was talking yesterday. I was on a discussion, um, it was a Methodist men's regional event, whatever else. And we're talking about race. I said, do you people not realize that a Jesus did not have white skin and blue eyes? Um, he was dark skin uh, with brown eyes. It was Middle Eastern, like not a Jew that moved back from Russia and had been bred through a bunch of white people. Okay, um, and so if a God sent His Son, took on flesh, was a brown man, and died for the sins of all Jew, Gentile. Man, woman, slave, free. Uh, then, how on earth does that death not mean something? One of the guys said, "Well, do you think it'll take another George Floyd death to change uh, to change race in, in uh, the country?" I said, "I don't know about that, but I'm telling you this: uh, we're not paying attention to the only death that mattered in the church, and it's not George Floyd." But anyway, all that to say that uh, that if we read the Bible in a plain way in the Old Testament, boy, it starts to make a whole lot of sense. It's amazing how much sense it makes. Um, and then I think we've got a chance to, to win Jews. They were reading it right. They just missed it. So we're not helping our cause by the way we're reading it either. So just, it's not hard. It's not a complicated way to read. You just read it and assume that it means something. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that Paul in, in Corinthians chapter, Second Corinthians, yeah, Second Corinthians chapter five, six. Okay, all right. So back to the okay. So back to to uh, uh, to, to chapter four. Daniel chapter 4. Okay, in Daniel chapter 4, 
Um, um, Daniel chapter four is this story of Nebuchadnezzar's pride. He thinks he's a he's a big deal. He elevates himself. The Lord humbles him, kicks him out of, basically removes his kingdom from him, and then brings him back from exile. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, this is what Israel's going to go through. They're going to be judged, removed from their uh, uh, from their uh, kingdom, and then restored. And Nebuchadnezzar is restored, humbled, right? And so look at what he says at the end of chapter 4. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? And at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored uh, to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out and I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and all of his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. If he can humble the King of, of Babylon, do you think he can humble Israel? Turns out, not so much. Right? We're going to find out, not so much. They are more hard-hearted than the king of Babylon. But does this mean believe? Oh, yeah. Is Nebuchadnezzar a believer? Yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that we'll see Nebuchadnezzar. Um, in fact, you're going to see all of these pagan gods come and make these same proclamations or something similar to it. Um, now, remember what's going on here, um, and we'll pick it up here. So in chapter 5 next week, somebody remind me chapter 5 next week. Um, that um, every time that Israel rejects the Lord, he judges them, and then the gospel goes to the nations. And the response of the nations is always the same. Belief. Nebuchadnezzar, belief. Uh, Israel rejects the Lord a few generations earlier, and uh, so the Lord sends Jonah to Nineveh. How did the Ninevites respond? Believe. Yeah. All the way through this story, Israel's rejection, the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles believe. And you're going to see that same thing happen in the New Testament. Tracking? Just making, making sense? Okay. Uh, read chapters uh, 5 through 12. In chapter 5, you'll have the judgment of this is the handwriting on the wall chapter. Uh, then uh, uh, and then in uh, uh, chapter 6, Dan, David, uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Chapter 7 will be the four beast nations, and that will go into chapter 8, 9, uh, and uh, that will lead you really through the, the rest of the book. Okay, so uh, just read it. You know, it should, it's fairly self-explanatory. Uh, he explains the visions all the way through. Okay? Good. Johnny, would you close the word of prayer? Yeah.